This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the butterfly effect. No, not the 2004 movie, although that was a good one, or the chaos theory, but the actual effect butterflies have on our environment. Entomologist Audrey Harrison is here to talk about the miracle of migration and how you can even help them on their journey. Also, Dr. Major here, ready to take your pet questions. So join the conversation with a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-672. 7464 or email the show animals at mpbonline.org. And a reminder that if you miss Creature Comforts as it broadcasts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, any events that you want to share with us? Okay. Well, you know, everything's turned into back to school now. So sad. I'm glad I went to school before (laughs) when we still had August was part of the summer. But now but uh, the exhibit's going strong at the Natural Science Museum, Ripley's Believe It or Not. And a reminder that teachers should schedule field trips if they want to go. And that holds for Pascagoula River Nature Center and Strawberry Plains and Clinton Nature Center. Teachers need to think about incorporating these fun field trips into their learning experiences and if you um, you know take a little time and work with the staffs at any of these facilities they'll help you stay on topic in science and have a a fun learning experience and then just a reminder for all of us that these cool mornings are making me think I might get back out on the trails and and um, canoe Okay. And part of why Audrey's here is, of course, the noon lectures at the Museum of Natural Science. And this coming Tuesday, she'll be the noon lecturer. So if you're interested in monarch butterflies and insects in general, um, you'll enjoy the show today. But uh, you might also want to follow up by going Tuesday to the Natural Science Museum at noon, and you'll hear more about all this. All right, very good. So we're going to be talking today uh, primarily about monarch butterflies, but if you have a pet question or a brush with wildlife you'd like to share with us, you can give us a call. The phone lines are open. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 7464 You can email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So as I mentioned, our guest today is entomologist Audrey Harrison. Audrey, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. What exactly is an entomologist? An entomologist is a person who studies insects. All right. Um, Is that something, do you remember as a kid being fascinated by? I mean, the the, the good thing about that field is there certainly are a lot of potential subjects to study in terms of the amount of insects. Were you always sort of interested in, in these kind of creatures? Oh, absolutely. I have always been interested in insects and and other animals as well. I um, 
got my start in entomology and was introduced to the field of entomology through the entomology camp that Mississippi State University hosts each year. I went um, to that camp as a child and... um, thanks to my aunt who uh, introduced me to that and was the camp nurse. And then I kind of stopped entomology for a while when it wasn't cool in high school. (laughs) But then I was reintroduced to entomology, particularly aquatic entomology, uh, through my mentor at Mississippi College, Dr. Bill Stark. All right. So we're going to be visiting with Audrey throughout the day, uh, throughout the program. So, again, if you have a question, uh, I, I think maybe handle bug questions in general, although we can't answer that she'll, you know, that she'll know everything. But uh, we're talking specifically about uh, the monarch butterflies today and, again, also looking for your pet questions, which I think we have one on the line. So we'll start off by going to the phones and saying hello to Martha in Ridgewood. Go ahead, Martha. You're on the air. Hi. It's Ridgeland, but thank you. Sorry. Uh, this this is for Dr. Major. This year, fleas seem to be particularly bad, and all topicals I've tried, including the top ones, Advantix, Advantage, all those are not working. Is there something that Dr. Major recommends that's working especially well? Now, I have a lot of squirrels. I've always thought the fleas were coming from squirrels on my property. There's a great argument about that. If the flea squirrels affect dogs and cats, but I would say, uh, in my opinion, unequivocally, yes, if they have fleas. The the predominant flea, incidentally, is the cat flea. Uh, oh. But it's on the dogs as well, so it's not it's not that choosy. Uh, but uh, here's the thing: if it's not working, use something else. Uh, I'm going to give you a name of one that's working for us right now. I mean, I live in okay. I live in Ridgeland as well. But uh, the the best thing that I've I've got on the market right now, and I hate to say a name, but still, is Brevecto. Okay. It's a three-month pill, and it's effective against fleas and ticks. And I haven't, you know, I hear feedback from clients if it's not working. And basically, it's still working. Fleas, uh, we can talk to our entomologist, but... Uh, they uh, over time will develop resistance because it kills off the susceptible ones, and the ones that are not susceptible will multiply and and come back. But yeah. a lot of the a lot of the topicals at this point have kind of not working as well. So you might try that. There's another one called Vectra V E C T R A that is for fleas and ticks. It is a topical, and it also kills mosquitoes. So that's a positive thing for that okay. one. Okay. But those are the two, and I may get in trouble for giving names. But uh, uh, What was the last one, Vectra? Vectra, V-E-C-T-R-A. It's a topical, and it lasts okay. a month. The uh, Brevecta lasts for three months. Yes, okay. Thank you, Dr. Major. You're welcome. Good luck. Hope it works. All right, uh, Martha, thanks for your call. Uh, just a quick follow-up there. So uh, should pet owners plan on possibly changing the type of flea medicine you use every periodically so to avoid that where the the fleas are getting used to it yes you know uh, some people say i don't have a flea problem but they haven't been challenged and if they get challenged you know you've got a problem then when i say challenge when the uh, animals and i didn't stress the fact that it's a multiple problem not just the fleas that are on the dog or cat but it also involves the environment, the surroundings. We have to be careful about what we put out in our yards and, and in the house. But they can also be a problem. What do fleas do? 
they suck blood. And uh, they are very efficient egg layers. Uh, if you bathe your dog or cat and you see blood in the sink, it's probably because of the flea stool or poop uh, that they've put out, and you can literally have a, a red water falling off of the pet. And if you have enough fleas, certainly they can become anemic. So these are things that you have to consider. But in answer to your question, if it's not working, I would try something else. All right. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with entomologist Audrey Harrison, who's going to help us understand more about monarch butterflies. Uh, the, uh, the Java, our producer, had a promo, and uh, he mentioned that uh, the life cycle of the butterfly is one, kind of one of the things I think that we learn about early on in elementary school science. And a lot of times, for a lot of us, it's been a long time since we've been in that classroom. So uh, remind us a little bit about the, the life cycle of the monarch butterfly. Sure. And so the life cycle of the monarch butterfly is similar to other moths and butterflies. And it is something that most children are aware of, but sometimes as adults we forget about and, and lose track of, of that kind of thing. So um, female butterflies lay eggs on a particular plant and the, and then the eggs hatch into caterpillars and the caterpillars eat the plant material, the leaves, the stems, different parts of the plants. And then when they have grown and grown they um, and have reached a mature caterpillar size, they become, they pupate or become a cocoon or a chrysalis. And, um, and then after a period of a couple of weeks or so, emerge from that chrysalis into an adult butterfly. And those, those things you know, vary in their lengths of time dependent on which species it is and and what the particular life cycle of that species is. So um, if I remember correctly, a monarch butterfly is primarily orange and black. Is that correct? They are. The adult butterfly is. The okay. caterpillar is yellow and black and white. And the chrysalis is a beautiful bright green color. So it's kind of, and the egg is a creamy white color. So it's amazing <laughs> that um, that's one of the fa most fascinating things to me about monarchs is that they uh, change so much in their appearance from egg to adult. Uh, let's get one call in before our first break. So we invite uh, Joanna from Columbia on the line. Good morning. You're on the air. So go ahead, please. Good morning to all, and particularly Dr. Harrison. I have a monarch question. In late March, I got, uh, there were about 14 caterpillars on my milkweed. I was able to successfully release nine healthy monarchs. I've been, I understand there are four generations with each migration from Mexico. I've been checking religiously and have not seen a caterpillar since, and it seems like it should almost be August, you know, ready, ready for them, the fourth and most important generation to go back to Mexico. What would have happened to that second and third generation? Well, that's a great question. So the monarchs that you released would be oh. heading north. So those other generations would occur north of us um, in uh, the Midwest, in, in Canada even. And then we will see, and you should see, a return of butterflies soon if you're if if you're not already seeing them so i've had in the last couple of weeks i've had monarchs all over my milkweed plants and That's have seen fantastic. 
Yes, have seen mature caterpillars and young caterpillars, and I'm planning to, I usually walk around in the evenings and check for <laughs> eggs and caterpillars and chrysalises, and so you should be seeing those soon. And That's it, wonderful. Yes, and, and mine seem to have been a little bit early for this fall migration, and mm-hmm. so you should, you should really start to see them in August through September and in the beginning right. of October. Wait, right. one last question. Do you bring your caterpillars in and hand raise them? The only time that I that I rear out caterpillars is if they are in danger of being mowed. Um, and okay. I have reared out a lot, a lot of caterpillars, hundreds of caterpillars and released mm-hmm. hundreds of butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually if if they're in my yard on my milkweed that I've planted and then and they're in no danger of being, you know, disturbed by human pressures i let them do their thing outside they tend to grow faster outside and um and so i just kind of give them the chance of course there is a lot of mortality outside um they have they face a lot of natural pressures but i just kind Mm -hmm. of let let nature work and i provide a place for them to to live in my yard Mm -hmm. and to hopefully successfully complete their life cycle. That's but is, is there mortality rates only 5%, only 5% live? I've, I've heard 10%, um, okay. but it, it might be closer to 5 It seems like um, what I see the most um, are hemipterans, true bugs, like especially stink bugs. I'll see mm-hmm. them eating caterpillars Ooh. and... Um, there are a few other bugs in that same order that eat that feed on caterpillars. Birds will eat caterpillars. Wasps will eat caterpillars, and um, and so there's you know that type of uh, mortality that happens. But that's that's something that has always occurred. Always. And right. um, and so the what I see um, as a bigger threat is the pressure that that humans put on the monarch butterfly and some of the changes that we've made to to their habitats and ch- mm-hmm. changes to the land use practices over time. Thank you so much. Love the program and the best to you all. Thanks for the call. <laughs> This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion with entomologist Audrey Harrison. We're talking about the monarch butterfly. You know, a group of geese is a gaggle. A group of dogs is a pack. What is a group of butterflies called? We'll find out after this break. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today we're learning about monarch butterflies from our guest, entomologist Audrey Harrison. Also, Dr. Major is here, ready to take your pet questions, and we always like to hear your brushes with wildlife. So give us a call. We have some open phone lines. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So before the break, we mentioned a group of geese is a gaggle, a group of dogs is a pack, a group of fish is a school, and this is really like a group of butterflies, this is such a cool name to me, is a kaleidoscope. 
mm-hmm. and how appropriate that is from all the color you would see of a group of butterflies uh, flying around. Although the answer is not as our call screener Michelle McAdoo guessed, scary, although I guess some people <laughs> might think a group of butterflies is scary. <laughs> Uh, We've got an email here that says, Hi, I have a monarch butterfly caterpillar on my milkweed. Yay. Is there any structure I could put near them that they might attach their cocoons to? Is there anything I should do to protect them? (coughs) Well, that's a great question, and congratulations on your caterpillar. That's really exciting. I'm going to say the answer is just kind of leave it alone. You don't need to put any kind of structure. Sometimes they will pupate on the plant, usually from the underside of a sturdy leaf. And so you'll sometimes see the chrysalises hanging there. And then I have had them crawl off of the milkweed plant and pupate on a nearby structure or a nearby plant. So I'm not sure what um, dictates where they pupate, but it just seems like they find their own little place and, and do it wherever they want to. And then anything to do? I mean, obviously, again, this is something that occurs naturally in, in nature, so they they don't need any help. But is there something that you could do if you find uh, one in your yard to make sure that it continues metamorphosing? Is that the right way to say that? So the biggest thing would just be to make sure that, of course, you don't disturb it or you don't, you know, be careful mowing around wherever it is. And uh, and if you, you know, if it's in a place that needs to be moved, you can certainly move the chrysalis by just detaching whatever it is attached to and moving that somewhere else um, that's stable. You can even bring the chrysalis in side and attach it to with thread to a container and keep it inside until it emerges as an adult butterfly and I've done that before and it's really exciting to to see the changes that occur in that chrysalis Um, a lot of people think that it's just kind of a boring phase but to me it's the most spectacular because inside that chrysalis that caterpillar is dissolving its caterpillar body and the proteins are changing around and restructuring and it's restructuring itself into something with wings and legs and um antennae and it's just it's just amazing yeah i mean that's uh, that that really is as you say it really has changing from something that you know is is completely different from what it was to begin with so that it really is uh, one of the the wonders of 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 nature that's for sure we've got a caller on the line so we say good morning to sue in beaumont sue you're on the air with us go ahead hi how's everybody today good i wanted to add you know kevin you when you said uh you call it a kaleidoscope is a group of butterflies i thought flutter would have been a good name for a group of butterflies <laughs> but anyway i want to i want to ask does, does your guests think that Butterflies are pollinators because I saw no pollinators this year except out there around my cucumber plants. They uh, butterflies would kind of hover around those blooms. And I want to ask her: uh, Is there any plants besides milkweed that, that these monarchs are really attracted to? That's a really great question, and I'm so glad that you asked it. Yes, butterflies are pollinators. Pollinators come in many different forms. Um, uh, they can, you know, beetles can be pollinators. Wasps can be pollinators. It's not just bees. Pollinators are anything that move the pollen from one plant to another to help fertilize that plant. And um, and so, yes, butterflies are great pollinators, and 
for milk for monarchs in particular, their host plants, the only food that the caterpillars eat are milkweeds. And we'll, I think we're going to talk about the different milkweeds that are in Mississippi a little bit later. But another important thing for all butterflies, including monarchs, are nectar plants. And, and those can come in the form of any, any different flowering plant species. Um, uh, they attract in different pollinators, including monarch butterflies, and provide them with nectar, which is especially important right now during their fall migration because that really fuels them up and gives them the energy that they need to make the incredible journey to their overwintering grounds in the mountains of Mexico. Thank you. You're All right. welcome. Sue, thanks for the call. Uh, so they are migrating at this point part of the year they're migrating from North America to South America. Well, they're migrating to Mexico. Right, right. They're they're migrating from the continental US and southern southern Canada and the continental US down to the transvolcanic mountains of Mexico. Okay. And are they located in all parts of North America? Yes, actually there are several different uh, populations of monarchs in North America. Um, there is an eastern population, which we're part of, and those are the ones that make the cross-continental <coughs> migration south to Mexico. And then there's a western population that migrates from the Rocky Mountains west to California and overwinter in California and Oregon. And I've gotten to to visit those sites before. It's incredible. Oh, I would yeah, love to I'd see love to it. see Mexican sites, but the the ones in California are wonderful. I would love to see. And then there are also some of the eastern population that actually overwinter in Florida and along the coast. Mm -hmm. So then do we see them coming the other way during another time of the year? We do. We start to see the spring migration that we see are the butterflies that are flying from Mexico to the continental United States. And so I typically start to see those at the very end of March, the beginning of April. Um, I think that March the 30th was was the first time I saw caterpillars this year. All right. And also, I guess from my elementary school science class, I remember the viceroy, but don't remember much about that. So tell us the difference between a monarch and a viceroy. Well, if you don't see them side by side, they can easily be confused. They're both orange and black. The viceroy um, tends to be a little bit smaller than the monarch butterfly, and it also has a different pattern uh, on its on its wings. It has an extra black stripe on its wings that distinguishes it from the monarch butterfly. But it is also so. Um, the one of the reasons that that monarchs are orange and black are that um, it is a warning to potential predators that monarch butterflies are toxic if ingested, and viceroys are the same way. And so they so the reason that they are brightly colored and a lot of brightly colored insects are providing a warning to their potential predators that they are either dangerous or toxic or harmful to their predator and to stay away. Um, that's that's something that you can see in in wasps and bees and with their yellow coloring and orange coloring and that's also true for monarchs. So um who are the predators for these uh, butterflies? Well, birds are a predator for the butterflies and and a lot of birds are uh, know which parts of the the butterfly that they can eat without um without being poisoned. And um and so 
let's see, birds, um, I would say between, between birds and humans, we're probably the biggest predators <laughs> or the biggest, the, we cause the most harm. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with entomologist Audrey Harrison, and we're learning more about monarch butterflies. We've got some open phone lines ready for your call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 We've mentioned the milkweed plant a couple of times, and uh, as Audrey mentioned, there are a number of species in Mississippi. When we get back, we'll talk about the variety of milkweed in Mississippi. You're listening to... Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and we'll be back with more after this. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting on the show today with entomologist Audrey Harrison, and we're talking about monarch butterflies. So if you have a question or a comment about these special butterflies, or if you have a pet question or a brush with wildlife you'd like to share with us, we've got some open phone lines, and the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to begin a discussion about milkweed as promised before the break, but first we have another caller to get to. So we invite Joan from Mobile into the show. Good morning, Joan. Go ahead, please. Hi. I just have one quick question. Um, I know the monarch butterflies. Uh, you can tell the difference between the male and the female about the dots on the back of the wings, the two little dots. But I can't remember if the dots mean it's a female or a male. <laughs> The dots mean it's a male. Those a male. Are, okay. Yes, those are those are scent receptors on the on the hind wings of the male. You're exactly right. Okay, great. All right. Thank you very much for clearing that up for me. You're right. welcome. Thanks for the call, Joan. Uh, so, as we mentioned, uh, I guess milkweed is important uh, because it provides a place where the 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 caterpillar can lay eggs and also. I guess food is, and and so, uh, do, do we know why the the um, the monarch is attracted to milkweed? Well, um, insects and plants have a very long history of with each other, and um, that is they they are it's part of coevolution, and over evolutionary time, the the monarchs have um, used milkweeds and. And there are there are a variety of different milkweeds, and monarchs can feed on each one of those. And and that's that's a really cool thing, in my opinion, is that um, that different plant species are important for different insects, and and that they are highly specialized to depend on each other. And um, and so you can see that all across the plant world and the insect world. So it's, as you say, it's they've over time that's developed that that's the the plant that gives them the nutrition and the most to what they need to to be healthy uh, species, I guess. 
Uh, so uh, how many different, uh, do we know how many different species of milkweed are here in Mississippi? Yes, we have between 17 and 18 different species that live in Mississippi. And those those milkweeds are each unique. They live in different types of habitats. And the one of the most common species that I see in, in South, Central, and North Mississippi is the green antelope horn milkweed. And um, you can see it very commonly on the roadsides. Um, it's a very attractive plant. It blooms a pretty creamy white color with um, a little bit of purple inside each of the flowers. And that is one of the most important plants for our monarch migration. Um, that seems to be one of their favorites to, to lay eggs or oviposit on. And then there are some other milkweeds that are pretty common. There's the butterfly weed, which um, is probably more familiar to some of the listeners. It has a pretty orangish red bloom. And it is different from some of the other milkweeds. Milkweeds are usually easily identifiable because if you break off one of the leaves or break the stem, a milky sap will come out. The butterfly weed, although it is a milkweed, does not have that milky sap. So sometimes that can be a little bit confusing, but that is a milkweed and monarchs will lay eggs on that and they will eat that if that's their only option. But if the green antelope horn milkweed is present and they usually go for that, I'm not sure why. Um, another common species down in South Mississippi and in Louisiana is aquatic milkweed. Um, and it it needs to stay wet, but it's a really important um, host plant in for the southern part of the monarch population. So we know monarch butterflies uh, go for milkweed. Uh, what about with humans? Is milkweed uh, poisonous to humans? It is. It, it is. So you don't need to eat milkweed. Um, I think the last time I was on the show and we talked about this, we had several callers call in from um, from different parts of the United States saying that they eat the they eat the buds of milkweed flowers and have never gotten sick. And so apparently some people do eat it, but it's, um, it is considered a toxic plant. Um, but most, most animals will avoid it. Um, it's very, a very common pasture plant. And if you drive through any part of central Mississippi where cows are be, are grazing, um, if, during the spring you'll see milkweed plants everywhere and they just graze around it. Uh, but because it's it's a native plant to Mississippi, um, it would be, I guess, easy to plant in your backyard and probably attract butterflies. Oh, absolutely. I have several species of milkweed growing in my flower beds and just just growing out wild in the yard at different places. And um, I have my the one that's in bloom right now, and it has a very pretty pink bloom and has caterpillars on it right now, is swamp milkweed. And it doesn't have to grow in a swampy area. I actually have it in full sun. And it's really easy to grow from seed. I actually brought Libby some seeds this morning. <laughs> I noticed as I was driving away this morning that one of my plants had had a seed pod that had opened up and the seeds were ready to be dispersed. Uh, milkweed seeds uh, are wind dispersed. They have a little a fluffy material, fluffy white material that helps carry them uh, with the wind to different places. And um, and so yeah, they can be easy. some species are easier to grow than others, but um, 
I've had pretty good luck with lots of different native milkweeds and different ones have different color flowers and they really are attractive flowers to have in your flower bed and they're perennials. They come back year to year and um, so they're just, they're a really nice complement uh, to your flower bed and they're a really important plant both for nectar and as host plants um, in your flower beds. Okay. Back to the phone lines we go, starting again in uh, Lee is on the line with us. Good morning, Lee. Go ahead. Good morning. What I would like to know is there are two things. One is what, if any, is the status of the monarch when it comes to going from flower beds to gardening and being a type of pollinator for fruits and vegetables in Mississippi, along with what is the status of the monarch forest in Mexico, and I'll hang up. All right, uh, Lee, thanks for the call. Always good to hear from you. I guess yeah, we had mentioned earlier, the but uh, the monarch is a good pollinator. It is a great pollinator, um, and it, it it is because it moves, as it's getting nectar, it's moving from flower to flower to flower to flower. And when it does that, it is not only taking in the nectar from the flower, which is what attracts the insect to the flower, but it's also taking the pollen from the flower and taking them to another flower. So it's it's mixing up the flower gene pool and spreading and uh, causing fertilization of the flowers through the movement from plant to plant to plant. Um, as far as the status of those forests in Mexico, that's a really great question, and that's a big concern. When when you're dealing with anything, any type of migratory animal, you have to think of it, um, think of its status in each part of that migration. And while we have control about what about how we take care of monarchs while they're in the United States, we don't necessarily have that same control in another country, and. Those areas, uh, those in overwintering sites, have been reduced substantially. Um, they have been they have been logged, and the trees that monarch butterflies are drawn to, they are drawn to a specific type of fir tree, and they huddle by the thousands, maybe even millions, on these trees together over the winter, and they they huddle together to maintain their body temperatures and, um, and to stay warm and for protection. And when those trees are removed, of course, that makes them unavailable as overwintering sites. There are several monarch sanctuaries in the transvolcanic mountains of Mexico, and those are really the areas that scientists have focused on because they're protected. And um, and so, yeah, that is a concern, and we don't necessarily have control over those lands. Um, what we do have control over is what happens when they're here, and that's equally as important. And so um, a, lot of, a lot of the area that monarchs were in high concentrations over time was in the American Midwest. And if you think about the land use changes that have happened from its natural state as prairie to um, to how we manage it now as in agriculture, um, that's been a big change. And one of the biggest um, one of the biggest threats to monarchs ha- recently has been the introduction of. Um, genetically modified crops that allow for 
herbicides to be sprayed liberally over the entire crop without killing the crop plant itself. So uh, particularly corn and soybeans, um, glyphosate can be sprayed directly onto those genetically modified plants and um, and they will and it will kill all of the plants except for those plants. And so whereas throughout history, or human history in that area, milkweeds were able to grow around the fields. Now the milkweeds and other other plants that 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 grew around the fields and were able to support um, caterpillars and other insects it, are gone. And and so that has had an effect on the migrating population in the United States. We've got another call to get to on creature comforts. And it goes to Bill in Greenwood. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air with us. How y'all doing? Uh, for several years, I had some milkweed growing, but I never did attract any monarchs that I know of. I thought some would come, and someone said, no, that's not quite as big as a monarch, but I might have had one. But how do you, even though when you grow the milkweed, what do you do to attract more or to get them to come to your your your, your uh, plants? Well, that's a really good question. So, um, what did your cat? First of all, what did your caterpillars look like? Well, uh, they were just mostly green. Okay. All right. So the monarch caterpillar is a striking uh, combination of yellow, black, and white stripes, and they have um, they're so they're very distinctive. And they can they can range in size size depending on their age, but um, they they get to be around uh, three inches long before they pupate into a chrysalis, and so that's what you need to be looking for. There are yellow, black, and white striped caterpillars. And so if you see those, you know that you have a monarch on your milkweed. Um, as far as your the other part of your question, what you can do to encourage them is to, my suggestion is just to keep planting. If you keep planting, they will find you as they're, as they're flying overhead looking for milkweed, they they are really good at being able to find it. And some of the some of the reasons why you don't necessarily see them in some areas is just because they occur in such lower numbers now than they did historically. So providing that host the host plants for the caterpillars is really the best thing that you can do to encourage them in your yard. And what type what time of year will we be most likely to see them on our plant? Well, I start seeing eggs and caterpillars during the spring migration at the end of March through about the end of May. You can find them. And then during the summertime, they've really moved north and gotten out. They've escaped the Mississippi heat and have gone to other places north of us. And then we start to usually, usually we start to see the return in the fall um, at the end of July, August, September, and into October. And then after October, you really don't see them anymore. They have, have gotten to where they're going and and we ex- anticipate seeing them again the next uh, in the next spring. We need to take, uh, all right, Bill, thanks for your call. We need to take one final break this hour. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with entomologist Audrey Harrison. When we get back from the break, we'll talk about what you can do to help protect monarch butterfly populations. Back to wrap up Creature Comforts after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with entomologist Audrey Harrison, who is helping us learn more about the monarch butterfly. So, um, Audrey, we've been talking about milkweed and how important that is for the monarch. Uh, and you, we have talked a little bit about planting it in your backyard. Uh, but during the break, you made an important distinction, and that is you want to find native milkweed plants. Absolutely. So like I mentioned earlier, we have about 18 species of milkweed that are native to Mississippi. And and so finding native milkweed is especially important because that's those are the species of milkweed that monarchs depend on when they when they are here. Um, a lot of times the only milkweeds that are available commercially in big box stores are the tropical milkweed and um, and that is the same species that they that they feed on in Mexico but that's not what we need to be planting here and there there can be a higher incidence of disease in the caterpillars and the adult butterflies and increased mortality if they are fed the tropical milkweed while they are here and we have so many native species that it's really important to find native milkweed species. And so one of the questions I'm asked frequently is, okay, okay, I want to plant native milkweeds, but where do I find it? And where I've had good luck finding it is in several places, depending on where you are. But um, across the state, there are several native plant sales every year, usually in the spring and in the fall. There's always one at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center in Holly Springs, if you're in North Mississippi. Um, there's in, in the Jackson area in, um, in Clinton. There's a native plant sale at the Clinton Community Nature Center, a spring plant sale and a fall plant sale. They usually always have milkweeds. And um, down in South Mississippi, the Crosby Arboretum always has um, plants, native plant sales. And, and they have done a lot of work recently to propagate native milkweeds in larger numbers. And so, and then another place that I, you know, you don't want to necessarily encourage it, but there's nothing wrong with going out and grabbing a, a mature seed pod from the side of the road or or somewhere in nature that you find it. Those are really actually the best plants to plant because those are genetically most similar and most suited for your area. And so I, I will say that I um, I keep you know, some shears in my car and, and maybe a shovel in case I see a plant that I would like to have in my yard. And um, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, especially in areas where those plants are subject to mowing or disturbance otherwise. So also I would say that uh, if you have milkweed in your yard or if you want to learn more about milkweed, maybe how to cultivate it, uh, Felder Rushing on the Gestalt Gardener every Friday morning at 9. Repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at t- uh, 10 mm-hmm. on MPB Think Radio. Felder is just a font of information, and I know he is a big proponent of uh, native plants as well. So if you need more information on uh, milkweed, uh, Friday mornings at 9, and we'll check in with Felder, and he would be able to give you some valuable information as well. We've got some open phone lines, a little bit of time left. If you'd like to work in a phone call, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two 672 
888-789-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Audrey, are there other things that people might could do to help maybe try to keep uh, uh, monarch butterfly populations healthy? Well, my recommendations are just plant it and they will come. Plant milkweeds, plant native plant native milkweeds and other native flowering species, and you'll be doing a service to monarchs. You'll be um, beautifying your yard, and you'll be providing good nectar sources for other important pollinator species as well. Right, so apparently the monarch butterfly is not the only creature that likes milkweed, so it would be helpful not for just the butterflies but for some other things as well. Exactly. Um, what makes a monarch butterfly different from other butterflies? Well, a monarch butterfly is just one of many uh, thousands of species of butterflies, and um, it's it's different in both its genetic makeup, it's different in its appearance, and obviously its behavior. It's a migratory species, and um, not every butterfly species migrates. There are um, a handful that have long migrations, and um, and so it's it's just a fascinating creature, and it has gotten a lot of attention recently. It's actually been petitioned for listing under the Endangered Species Act, and it's um, currently in review for that, and there will be a decision made on uh, whether or not to list that species um, in the next year or two. And so right now they're collecting as much data as they can to um, to figure out how the population sizes have changed and, and are expected to change in the coming years. Uh, you know, I think uh, with migration, uh, when we talk about hummingbird migration and that sort of thing, and, and with these butterflies the same way, I, I think when you first think about it, you, you don't really have a grasp on it. But give us an idea of kind of the scope of migration for these, you know, again, uh, a butterfly small enough to fit in the palm of your hand but they they go on this tremendous journey. Talk, talk about that, if you would. Right. Imagine a butterfly, as fragile as they look and feel, being able to start in Canada or in the Midwest or in Mississippi and make it all the way across the Gulf of Mexico, flying sometimes in the jet stream at the same levels that airplanes fly and catching that jet stream and making it all the way to exactly where they need to go in in the mountains of Mexico. It's it's simply amazing. Um, it blows my mind every time I think about how something so small can know where to go, what to feed on, what to look for, um, how to congregate and survive a winter in in the mountains. It's it's simply amazing. Also, I guess it's all instinct that, you know, where they go, how they get there, but even the fact that they, I guess they fly together in large groups. Um, so because they're not normally, or are they normally large groups, or are they more uh, solitary creatures? Historically, they could be seen migrating in very large numbers. The population sizes were large enough to where you could look up and you could see hundreds flying overhead. And and so they don't necessarily travel together intentionally, maybe, but there were their population sizes were large enough to where they could be seen in in great numbers going the same direction with each other, and and so that 
that I hate that I was not around to get to see that. I have seen, you know, I'll, where I would be standing outside in the fall and, and see, you know, maybe 10 pass overhead. And that was amazing to me. But to imagine that at a larger scale would have been really, really cool. And hopefully, if we're able to, to continue to protect them and to encourage their successful um completion of their life cycles and encourage their migrations, maybe one day we'll get to see them in those numbers again. All right. Very good. Uh, reminder that uh, you, if you want to hear more about monarch butterflies, that Audrey will be at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science uh, next Tuesday, which is August the 7th. 7th. Thank you. Uh, Tuesday, August 7th at noon, uh, lecture about uh, monarch butterflies from our guest entomologist, Audrey Harrison. So uh, we got um, just about 20 seconds left. Any, any final words, anything that we haven't covered that you could want to quickly mention? Well, um, I think that we've pretty much covered it all. Um, just like I said, cut, well, come out and hear the lecture on Tuesday. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the plants themselves and how to propagate those plants and um, which ones are the easiest to grow and that sort of thing. So if you're interested in gardening or want to incorporate native plants into your yard, um, come out to the museum if you can and, and or send me an email. Um, you can email the show and they can get all of those emails to me. And what's that email address? It is animals at mpbonline.org. And that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by generous contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. For Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Audrey Harrison, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's MPP's Season Pass. That's followed by Southern Remedy. And we'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.